recorded during the Plague Year 2020. This is the Andromeda Minute, a show where Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays we go over one minute of Robert Wise's all-too-timely 1971 techno-thriller, The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan of The Rocketeer Minute and EAA's The Green Dot. Yes, and Hal, thanks again for being back with us. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about on Monday, and I think we both thought of it at the same time after <laughs> it was too late, um, but uh, uh, dear Mr. Mister Jackson talks about, uh, well, he tells Dr. Hall to go fish, which uh, was uh, kind of a popular game when, when I was a kid. I don't know. I think it's been supplanted by uh, Uno. But, yeah, uh, yeah, but I always remembered go fish. I remember the ads for them and everything else, and it's funny because in our... You know, through the prism of 2020, when he says go, you know, you're expecting yeah. <laughs> you're expecting something a lot stronger and a lot more uh, a lot more profane. But uh, it's a G-rated movie, so I guess yes. they have to go with Go Fish. That's right. We um, discussed that uh, in the uh, the first week we did together how it's G-rated, but uh, but there were there were some things that would not be G-rated today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's so. definitely Netflixable, I would think. Yeah. <laughs> Netflixable. Interesting, too. Um, and I don't know if this quite counts as progressive, but, uh, you know, when you, you think of attitudes we would have seen in the in, in the very, very early 70s when this was made, um, it is, it's interesting to me that uh, um, the poor ailing Mr. Jackson is, uh, he's, uh, you know, drunk, etc. He's a misogynist, but he's not racist. Yeah, that I that we see, and I don't know if that's come up uh, before or not. But it's interesting that he just he's uh, he's happily flirting uh, with uh, with Karen, and you know, teasing her about not being able to see her legs and everything else. And it's like, I I, I guess that's a little better than it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it kind of, it kind of, you know, I guess you have to, you know, take your pluses where you can find them. Right. It's um, a, it feels a bit, uh, you know, sort of a bit hollow, but, uh, but Hey, he's a little bit of a dirty old man, but he's equal opportunity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, <laughs> we'll just have to award him. I don't think he gets a gold star, but maybe a bronze <laughs> or something. Right. Um, Karen Anson's reaction to him was like, Oh, that's nice. You're, you know, you're like all the other men around here. Right. Um, yeah. You're probably going to die of yeah. the horrible space <laughs> flu. So it's fine. Yeah. I've got this. Yeah. I've got this suit on. So too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she seems, uh, I, she has the most, patience of anybody in this entire show i think uh right she's the antithesis of dr levitt dr Le- dr levitt does not suffer fools easily no, she, dr levitt does not have time for you yeah <laughs> just under any <laughs> circumstances she's completely done with the whole thing she's she's had to put up with uh men not being able to see her legs and all this other stuff for decades right so yeah, she. Uh, but Karen seems to be. You know, eventually we'll fix all this stuff, and all these people will be gone, and I'll be back at my regular job here, on you know, five stories down, and I won't have to deal with it. So I think she's looking at it as a uh, uh, passing trauma. Um, you know, something you said just kind of triggered something for me. Yesterday we were, or excuse me, on Monday we were talking about uh, um, the possible sort of future of this whole project and what it's like. So do you think after? Let's if if we presume, and I mean no spoilers about the ending or what might have happened after the film, but if we presume for a moment that the this bug is defeated and everything's fine and we sort of go back to normal, um, how long are those those absolutely bonkers uh, 
and and yet ridiculously detailed sort of cleansing and disinfectant uh, disinfecting procedures going to stay in place is that every day when you work here even when there isn't a, a space flu going on yeah i mean I, well the other thing is how often do you need to go upstairs because right it, it really if you get upstairs you are 112 miles from the nearest bit of civilization right and i mean and even if you wanted to go further you know if you wanted to get someplace in a hurry you have to get in a smelly old uh, Plymouth Valiant and uh, drive, you know, have somebody drive you out over a rut-filled uh, desert highway uh, to an airfield and hope that the plane can take you out of there okay. And uh, I guess go to Vegas or Los Angeles. I don't know where. Right. You know, how many people do you think work here? That's a good question. That's really You don't really get a good sense of it because it's, I think, you know, by design. I mean, it is a, it is a very claustrophobic film once we're underground. Um, and you know, you get the sense that there could be, you know, scores of more of these whole sort of these, uh, these, you know, pie shaped, uh, sort of these yeah, big little... cylindrical sections like this may not be even be the only one of those. There could be, who knows how many more there could be, but, uh, yeah, there, there could be other other silos somewhere under that barley yes. field that, you know, they're doing other projects. I was trying um, to think of the word cylinder tube uh, storage <laughs> thing. Yes. Silo, Jim. That's, yeah, there we that go. would yeah. be the word I was looking for. Uh, just like uh, Monday, you rescued me with the word uh, galleria, which yes. I, I think <laughs> the more we talk about uh, how many people might work here, the better, the stronger case we're making uh, to get that thing built. Well, yeah. And like, do they, even if you get a weekend off or if you're working 10 days on 10 days, I don't know how I, I, I assume you've, you've seen the, uh, you've seen the white liveried planes in, um, at McCarran in, in Vegas. I was just going to bring that up. The, the Janet flights from yes. uh, just another non-existent terminal. Yes. Um, I remember, uh, so what we're talking about is we're talking about these, uh, these mostly unmarked uh, white 737s just have a red stripe down the side and, and the tail is painted over and uh, they, you know, they they transport uh, employees or contractors to Area 51 back and forth out of Las Vegas. And I remember in the mid 90s when, you know, when the Area 51 stuff was really coming to light, when you got the Air Force and the U.S. government laughing, there's no base there, but you're starting to see pictures. And then it was, I think, a popular science published a Russian satellite image of Area 51. And it says, well, yeah, excuse me, there's there's a base there. And uh, that's when we started, this stuff started trickling out and you started seeing people going up to the, the Freedom Ridge and taking pictures and things. And then you started hearing about these, uh, these 737s, these Janet flights. And it was around that time that uh, I went to uh, Las Vegas for the first time in ages to a wedding. And I remember thinking, you know, boy, while I'm there, I'm really going to keep my eyes open. It would really be cool to see one of these things. But, you know, I probably won't. But wouldn't it be neat? And you get to McCarran and you walk past your first couple of slot machines and you look out the window and across the airport, oh, there they are. And there's the, you know, buses with the windows blacked out that pull up and then, you know, the airplanes come and go and it seems sort of perfectly normal. I thought, well, this, this isn't secret at all. It's just, it's just they're the airplanes that take off and I think head basically due north, if I remember right. Everybody else goes some other direction. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's hiding in plain sight. And it's just very weird that, yeah, we live in, we live in an open society, but there's certain parts of it that are closed off that if you if you hide it right, nobody knows anything about it. I am right. um, I I used to live I used to live in Virginia and I worked at Dulles Airport. I lived in Northwestern Virginia, 
and I used to go home every night over the top of Mount Weather. And uh, there's a Virginia Route 7 goes goes right next to uh, the Mount Weather facility, which is the in case you know in case somebody decides to drop a bomb on DC, all you know the president, and the vice president, and, the, and Congress and all that would be shipped up to this little. Um, it's a cave. It's 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 a it's a, a hollowed out cave inside of a mountain in the in the Blue Ridge, and uh, up until, gosh, I think it was like the year two thousand, nobody ever admitted to um, that of the existence of Mount Weather, and there were people in my town who worked at Mount Weather. I mean, they, that you know they had a job there. They like were. Um, cafeteria employees, there were janitorial services, there was motor pool, and they would go up that way. And when people people asked where they worked, they'd say, "Well, I work at um, I work at a weather station um, in the Blue Ridge for the national, you know, the Aunt NOAA." But wow. they didn't work for NOAA. <laughs> they worked for they worked for the DOD, or they worked for the NSA, or they were, you know. Uh, but this is the it's where the government would move in case of a nuclear attack, and um, I can remember driving past there every night, and it, it was made. If, if you went down the road where Mount Weather was, there was this little road that uh, it was specifically designed so that it didn't look like much when you were driving by it, except for the fact that it had this gigantic um, highway overpass where they could move tanks and trucks and things that they had to get over the the small road when you suddenly come across this interstate-sized overpass. <laughs> In the middle of the woods. Just a little um, bonus infrastructure, that's all. Yeah, you know, it had to be there. And it's just, uh, you know, as as the veil of secrecy has come down over a lot of things, I don't think we'll ever get it out of uh, Area 51 simply because that's where all the new fighters and all the new, you know, the new technology is tested out in Groom Lake. But it's just, it's just weird when you think about how many decades all these places existed without anybody, you know, uh, slipping slipping their lips about, uh, anything going on there and you know right. like, again wildfire it's funny how that was 30 years before any of this stuff kind of spilled so uh wildfire wasn't that far off to what a you know what a real place like this was um yeah that's I, a that's a great point and you know my my typical sort of calm and you know rational response to most conspiracy theories is that um you know conspiracies are too complicated and nobody is you know nobody can get that many people to keep you know keep a secret that well for that long and then you you have to you have to look at something like area 51 and say well they did pretty well for a while you know and uh <laughs> but uh but boy, one of these days i i i hope there's you know some bit of the veil is lifted to the point where you just sit down and talk with somebody who gets on one of those Janet 737s every day and goes to work. I would just love to know what, you know, what's a typical day like there. And I'm sure it's not particularly mysterious or even necessarily always very exciting. It's just another facility. But, but what is, you know, what is your day-to-day life? What do you tell people? You know, do you, do you get home and, you know, look around the room and turn the shower on and turn the radio up loud and, and tell your <laughs> wife, I work at Area 51, you know, or do they the know? aliens are talking to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Plus, yeah. I'm Batman. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. So anyway, this, yeah, this, that's where we went with this. I just still, I, I still want to know where all the. 
you know, when when the um, the Borden milk milk trucks show up, <laughs> they're bring, they're going to a barley field and they have you know enough to uh, enough milk for five hundred people. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, well, who's going to be drinking all this milk? Um, but then I guess they have just, contractors who are don't ask, don't tell. And, yes, just leave it on the porch. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, wow. Goodness. Well, it's yeah. That's the the wildfire life. I wish they had a logo. I, I, I was hoping that they would have some kind of a logo. But I guess if they had a logo, that would give everything away. And yeah, that's true. A, a big mushroom cloud. Yeah. Some, <laughs> yeah. some uh, graphic designer would go spill the beans. And yeah, yeah. It's just a, an octopus encircling the world with a mushroom cloud <laughs> underneath. Um, well, well, we get we, here. We are getting rid of um, you know the uh, the, the uh, Doctor Hall makes this dramatic proclamation that uh, you know we might have to wonder what the baby's you know the baby may have to do something before this is all over. And, right. And uh, the nurse looks at him and, and then the baby starts crying all over again. So, and hopefully the, the baby doesn't need to, you know, drink himself nearly half to death. Yeah. <laughs> in order to survive this thing. I'm but over here. Yeah. Interesting that it is around this time. We're, we're starting to really see the, uh, see some clues as to what, uh, how this thing works. Yeah. And uh, we, we cut away finally from, from being underground for a half an hour, yes. um, we get to a close-up of a of a pilot inside of an Air Force jet, and he's kind of nodding off while his uh, while this is a fascinating little effect where his uh, oxygen mask is kind of turning into a green powder. That really is amazing. I keep watching it and just I, I can't even tell you for sure how they did it, other than to say that well, they've got something on there that's just truly just disintegrating. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it's clay, and then they, they dry it out, and then they told him, don't move his face, and then when you want it to fall apart, just start moving your jaw a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just maybe but, flex your jaw a bit. But I'm not, I'm not seeing him move. He's not – I keep no. scrubbing that section, and it's just he doesn't seem to be doing anything that, that's right. making that happen. So it's uh, just very, very peculiar. I mean, it's such um, a simple thing, but when you think about how would you actually go and recreate that, you know, right now, practically in camera, not CG, of course. Yeah. Now, now I do notice that uh, I am not an expert, uh, as you might be, though, of oxygen masks. But I notice that there's green powder that's separate from his mask. That, that does look like a whole rubber mask, and they've just added more green exterior to it, doesn't it? I, I don't know. Yeah, how it does. It's hard. It's it's hard to get a, a really clear look at it. But yeah, there's the. There's the hard plastic piece that connects directly to the hose, and then there's, you know, there's there's a whole, as you said, a whole sort of separate entity. You can see that up. Um, in fact, at the particular frame I've stopped on, it's uh, sort of giving him a bit of a green unibrow. Um, yeah. So going up there between uh, between his eyes, and that should be, uh, and this is not my area of expertise at all, but that should be sort of a more integrated part. Whereas in this case, it looks like his. Uh, you know, the hard plastic apparatus, which would normally have a softer sort of a cuff kind of a thing around it. That's for the sake of the film. That's what's holding the green stuff to his face. Yeah. Um, I, is that a standard? I'm, I'm assuming that some kind of um, a, a standard uh, helmet that uh, does, does it look familiar? A David, it, uh... it generally does. What I can't see is if there is a, there should be, and I, I don't know if we get a good enough look at it as I scrub back and forth. I can't see if there's a visor uh, in it or room like where a visor would come down because that seems a little bit unusual that by this point flying, uh, as we see, I think we see 
Uh, is it before this or after this we see an exterior of the airplane? I know we don't uh, in this minute. I don't. I don't think we see it in in this in this particular minute. Yeah, I know we don't here, but we we at some point we know it's an F four, F four Phantom. So I would have expected to see sort of a retractable visor, and then there may be a slot where it can go down. It's just normally you see, uh, you know, sort of an adjustable piece on the front of the the helmet where you can raise it up and down. But um, anyway, I I kind of talking. Uh, talking out of my pad or out of my helmet at this point because it's not my strongest area of expertise. Yeah, it's, um, uh, of course, the name has gone out of my head, uh, David Clark, right? David, uh, David Clark is one of the bigger manufacturers of this kind of equipment, right? Right, yeah. They're, I mean, they're, they're famous sort of in my world for their, uh, their headsets. And headsets anytime you see somebody with that pale green, and not yeah. too far off of the color of the the powder, a little bit lighter than that, a pale green ear cups. That always means it's a David Clark headset, and they make a lot of helmets and a lot of you know, integrated communications gear and stuff like that as well. Yeah, I had I had looked through the um, uh, the end credit or the end credits of the the beginning, the beginning credits, and there doesn't seem to be any mention of David Clark equipment. So I don't know if this is just a simple prop or somebody actually giving them something yeah. that's current. Um, but uh, peculiar i do like the uh, absolutely crazy uh, uh synthesizer music that's playing while, while all this is happening you feel oh, like it's just being invaded um and then we get a, a good a, a view of a an instrument panel that it's supposed to be in a phantom f4 but that doesn't look anything to me like a f4 thing and no and I, I i puzzled over this quite a bit because there's you know, some of the things that are in there are sort of credible, though you've got a you've got a mock meter that uh, that only goes up to 1.0, um, which would be a bit on the a little bit on the slow side for an F4. Um, a couple of really interesting things come out. So number one, like when we first see this, um, and I don't think an F4 would have had a traditional just turn and bank indicator with the inclinometer ball, which uh, if you started that first perfectly level shot of the panel, it's uh, it's the second gauge from the left in the bottom row. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that's something that you see much more traditionally in in uh, in so, light aircraft, so, GA aircraft, yeah. and things like that of of a an older era, but not necessarily. Um, but what's interesting is that you've got you know somebody went to some effort to to animate gauges and make things work. So at about the center of the screen where it says pull to cage, that's a, a artificial horizon. And uh, caging means that it will, uh, it's powered by a gyroscope. And if you pull that knob, you would do that before you would do um, any kind of extreme aerobatic maneuver. So caging it just locks it in place because if you do a, a series of extreme aerobatic maneuvers, you can cause the gyro to tumble and then that gauge won't be accurate really, really for the rest of the flight. So you would pull that on when you knew you would be, be doing something, uh, something extreme. So that's, you know, that's sort of kind of the right thing, although not really the right size for a fan on the attitude indicator and the phantom was much, much bigger. But you've got that showing us that we're in a dive. You've got an altimeter in the low left corner that's winding down, which is good. But uh, just down and left from the uh, that attitude indicator, that artificial horizon, you've got a vertical speed indicator. And it's one of two you'll see on this panel, which makes no sense. Um, and as you look at it, it's... It's initially showing a climb of uh, like uh, what 5,500 feet per minute, where everything else is showing us in a dive. But if you watch the needle as we zoom in on it, 
the needle then jumps because like it's pegged at all the way up and then it kind of jumps the peg and then it's pegged all the way down at, you know, basically 6,000 feet a minute down. So if you watch that needle, it jumps around. What really got my attention, though, and gave me a clue as to maybe maybe how this was where some of the pieces of this hybrid panel were sourced was, give me one second here. If you go to about uh, second 30, so halfway through the minute, we get a close-up look at another vertical speed indicator. Right. And uh, it's a link trainer. Yes, exactly. Ah, that's okay. the that's the the ding ding moment right there. It says link trainer. So this would have come out. And link trainers were, um, it's fair to call them some of the first modern flight simulators. I mean, they were back in the uh, back in the, the the 30s and certainly prevalent during World War II. And it's uh, it's a thing that looks like uh, the original ones. Now they got more and more advanced than I would expect in the you know in the Air Force the jet fighter era. Um, you would have something more advanced than this, but the the sort of the quintessential link trainers look like a ride that you would see outside of a supermarket or yeah. used to back when we were kids and you put in a quarter and get in this little airplane and it would sort of bounce around. So you climb into this little stubby fake airplane and they close the lid on you and you have no outside view. You're just looking at the instruments, but the whole thing does move hydraulically in, in three or at least sort of two and a half axes. And then you've got an instructor at a table looking at a plot of your sort of imaginary flight. And then they, of course, do the things instructors do, which is fail systems and give you emergencies and make everything go terribly wrong to see how you cope with it. So interesting to me that we've got a second vertical speed indicator, um, very much not appropriate for something like a Phantom because you notice it would peg at 2,000 feet a minute up or down, whereas the other one would peg at six. And of course, it says, you know, says Link Trainer uh, right there on it. Um, yeah. So it tells me, okay, that somebody probably had something like a link and, you know, is able to sort of cobble together a panel and then um, and then actually move the gauges and sort of trigger certain certain things. I doubt that this was connected to an actual simulator because some of the readings just don't really make sense. But interesting that they're able to actually sort of mechanically animate gauges and give you some semblance that things are going wrong. Yeah. Um, very, very quickly before I shut the heck up for a second. Also, this frame right at second 30, we're looking at that link trainer vertical speed indicator. The upper left, you see that turn and bank indicator. And in this case, the uh, the ball in the inclinometer is all the way to the left, which means you are yawing very aggressively to the right. And that's interesting, too, because that is that works just like like you think it might. It's a carpenter's level, in effect. It's a ball in a tube in fluid. And uh, interesting to me how they would have uh, uh, actually sort of faked that. Other gauges, you sort of hook up a motor to it and spin the needle and everything else, but that's, that's not a mechanical thing. It's just a, it's just a physical thing that you would, uh, perhaps they're tipping the whole cockpit or maybe there's a magnet behind it that just moves the ball back and forth when they need to do something. But um, it does just sort of further show this airplane being out of control. So in that sense, it's, it's credible and kind of weirdly not necessarily trivial trivial to sort of recreate or animate unless by chance this was the guts of an original or an actual link trainer simulator that then they could recreate this stuff yeah it's uh, i i don't know where i don't know where it came from but in you know it, this of course was filmed before the invention of the or was after the invention of vcrs but before they were in popular uh, home commercial reuse so 
I think uh, Robert Wise wasn't expecting anybody to look at this in this level of detail. Right. I think um, if he were here now, he would nod sagely and then punch us each in the mouth. Yes. <laughs> you make a I... movie about it then. Yeah, exactly. Smart yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, college boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, we, we, leave the, we leave the instrument panel and go to... Uh, <laughs> The most expositional moment of this, you know, it's like, here's a crash site, here's Piedmont. Here's I'm sorry, where... yeah, where's the crash site? Oh, yeah. it's with the giant black letters and the red X that says crash yeah. site. Where, where they, they swapped out uh, cans of uh, nail polish to to draw the red X, you know, X marks right. the crash site. And uh, rather, you know, specific by saying, yeah, in this entire corner of Utah. Right, exactly. So it's somewhere south of Moab and north of uh, Albuquerque. And right. not that far from uh, the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all right uh, just east there. I think uh, Vacation Lands National Park is a little bit to the north there. Um, and uh, not too far from Shiprock, if, if I, my memory serves correctly. It's a, it's a little bit west of Shiprock. Um, the Four Corners area is one of my favorite parts of the world, and uh, seeing this is it brings back a lot of memory. I don't, I, have you been to like Moab area? No, you know that's uh, I've, I've I've only been to uh, sort of the Utah area once, and it was visiting some friends up near Provo and Salt Lake in that area. But uh, that the you know sort of the the Southwest proper um, is an area that I haven't explored, which is. Which is strange for me because it's an area that I'm curious about. And I've been lucky to do a lot of traveling throughout the U.S., so I need to it, just put that on the list. I mean, def- one of these definitely. days, my my true bucket list dream is I've got to go to Albuquerque and take a left. Take a left, yes. <laughs> and if you get that, you get it. If you don't, then your childhood makes me weep. Yeah, I, I actually that road that comes down from Santa Fe to Albuquerque, I, I specifically took that that road so I could make the left at Albuquerque to go home. <laughs> because and, you, we've seen what happens when you don't. Yes. So many times <laughs> we have seen the perils of not taking that left at Albuquerque. Ah, it's uh, it's such a it's such a great part of the world. Uh, that southeastern Utah, I, I've been to where, where you were talking about in Salt Lake and and Provo up that way, Ogden, um, and uh, Promontory Point, beautiful. You know, snow-capped mountains, a lot of ski areas, but the southeastern boy. If you're gonna, if you're gonna crash and think you woke up on Mars, that's the place to do it. The uh, the Moab area, all those those pictures. Everybody's seen pictures from National Geographic of vacation lands with a giant arch and things, and it's just this gigantic red rocks. Not a lot of you know. There's some scrub brush, but uh, just a a great a great place to crash a plane if you're you know if if you want to have your uh, NTSB crew. Uh, uh, to see some great sights. That's that's the place to do it. Um, but yeah, this is a little bit a little bit too on the nose for me having this gigantic uh, crash site thing written on the map. Right. But um, it is, as you said, it's probably the most expository thing in the movie, uh, and it's uh, it's interesting that that uh, you know we've got the claustrophobia of uh, of level five in the rooms and the spacesuits, and then. We break out of that, and it's such a relief, but, oh, we're in a cockpit, and creepy things are happening. We're sort of wedged in there, and now this airplane's going to crash. You know, this is this at least lets us sort of get our bearings again. And, and you know, it's it'd be much nicer to see real scenery. Um, and in an interesting choice to just have the crash itself happen off camera, just deciding, you know, we don't need to just do a quick special effects explosion, or we don't need to cut to stock footage of some crash or something like that, but just... We'll just uh, 
We'll just write the words on a map. Yeah, theater of the mind yeah. seems to work best, and it's probably a lot, a lot less pricey than, than having to come up with that kind of effect, Indeed. especially back there. So we're, we're, we wind up back in the uh, the first interior set from uh, back around minute seven or so. We're back in uh, Scoop Mission Control, which is now, uh, I guess, Crash Site Mission Control. And uh, we have Major Mancheck, the man who yes. you know pulled the fire alarm on, uh, on Wildfire. Does um, he strike you as kind of old for a major yeah i i think um uh one of uh, i had uh our friend our good friend uh rory elward came on the show to talk oh, about sure. uh to talk about uniforms and things and how just generally all these guys are overweight out of shape <laughs> and way too old for whatever they're doing now, right the, the, the two-star general general sparks uh he he seems even too old he seems like he should be retiring and just you know, he they, like they pulled him out of retirement. He's about ten years too old for his job. And even uh, you know, Major Manchek's hair wouldn't. Uh, I think even as we slid into the seventies, it still wouldn't have passed muster. No, no, he's but, it's uh, way way too scruffy. And uh, they all seem to have those uh, those beer guts. Um, <laughs> Indeed, and it's uh, it, yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah, it, it, but you know, they're they're all good actors. Being, gr- I, I think they. They just had the word gruff written on the casting sheet. So get somebody gruff. And so they just found these these three gruff guys to right. uh, stare. And Well, and, you know, thinking about his uh, just his appearance and trying to sort of judge his age. Um, on the day that we recorded this, you and I had a brief exchange on Facebook and you had posted a picture of uh, Al Lewis as Grandpa Munster. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we grew up. That's what a I mean. He's an old man. I mean, he's an old vampire. So, but that's what little old men look like. And how old did you say he was when he started that show? Was, the first year he was on, it was he was 41 years old. So and that's more than 10 years younger than me at this point. And yet I don't, I don't feel like I'm anywhere near that age. And yeah, you can say there's sort of there's makeup and things like that. But then I think I read somewhere that, you know, when Wilford Brimley did Cocoon, he was... Yeah, he was 51. 51. So, 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 he, so he's younger than I am now. And he's some little old man. So there was something, something about it. And I don't know, is it, is it just because when we were, you know, we were younger that everybody looked older? Does every generation go through that? Or was there something with pop culture in particular that made people seem, somehow seem older? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I'm assuming that we look this old to people, you know, who were our age now. So... Uh, I guess know, we, I would have to face that uncomfortable reality, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really care to. Yeah, I I, know, I I feel that way as well. I keep, you know, I, I keep looking at you. You wander through a, uh, you know, a grocery store and things, and they tell you about senior discounts. And the senior discount number has gone down to fifty instead of fifty-five. It used to be fifty-five, and now it's like, well, fifty or over. I'm like, really? And so, um, which is weird, as you know, as life expectancies have generally gone up pretty dramatically, you know, at least on, on the grand scale. Strange that uh, that those things would move that direction instead of the other. It is it is peculiar, but you know we we just we have to face it that we're just not we're not getting any younger. But as you as you said in, yeah. in your response to my Facebook, is, is older was younger back then. Yeah, and, I think it really was. Uh, and you know, again, as we're recording this, sort of fairly recently in the news, we're you know mourning the loss of uh, of Sean Connery, and I go back you know and look at you know one of my. Very, very favorite of the Bond films. You know, I've talked about it on other shows, Goldfinger in particular, but I'm, I'm a 
big bond nut. I'm no Mark Cerulli, but I get by. Um, and uh, think about something like Goldfinger. And I look at his character there, even now, and I look at him, and it's like, well, that's, you know, he's a grown-up man. I don't know what I am, but uh, <laughs> but he will, that character, and he was in his, I think he was about 34 when yeah. Goldfinger came out. But he's... Is it is it that he's older than me? I mean, obviously, literally, Sean Connery in real life is older than me. But now that I'm older than that character, what is it about him that I look at that and say, that is, uh, you know, that's an adult and I'm just a, what, an emotionally stunted man child? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, Jim, but but it <laughs> yeah, fascinates it, me. It, it's, uh, you know, better fascinating to be depressed by it. It's just, you know, the good, the good, you go. the good idea is that, yeah, we're, we're, we're just going to have to deal with being alive this long. <laughs> I think you're right. I've 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 told this story before, but uh, my uh, uh, my my late wife's great grandfather uh, was married to her great grandmother for 65 years. They lived in a little town in uh, in central Texas, and uh, the Waco newspaper sent a, a reporter out to interview them. And, and you know, what's the secret to uh, to being married for 65 years? How do you, how did how did you manage that? And uh, so they asked, uh, his name was Papa Sellers, and they asked Papa Sellers, uh, how, how is it that you managed to stay married for 65 years? And he said, well, I, I don't know. He said, who would have thought we'd live this long? And that's, <laughs> wow. I think that, that, that's probably the, the summing up of most of life. It's like, well, I don't know. I was going <laughs> to live this right. long. So, um, well, was it, was it uh, Groucho Marx maybe who said, you know, if I'd have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So if it was either Groucho Marx or Yogi Berra, one of the, you know, the two great wow. uh, geniuses of the 20th century. Well, uh, while people still are old enough to, you know, they're, they're all grown-ups and doing these things, um, one thing I, I would like to go just point out that you are a member of uh, the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association, and I, I found out when I, in meeting you that I didn't have to be a pilot to be a, an EAA member. And I was just going to suggest for other people who have always had a bucket list of, I want to learn how to fly, I want to learn more about aircraft and things. Um, let's talk just a little bit about the EAA. Um, oh. that it, it's true that you don't need to be a pilot to, uh, to, be, to be a member of the EAA. Absolutely not. I mean, even since uh, the organization was founded back in 1953, even... Uh, um, one of the terms will feel a little bit uh, a little bit gender dated, so I'll apologize for that. But but from the very beginning, we've had sort of three prongs to our membership, and that's pilots, uh, craftsmen, and enthusiasts. And uh, the enthusiasts are a crucial part of it. And so, just you know, very quickly, the the name Experimental Aircraft Association came from uh, the idea that that we were a group of people who. Uh, who liked and wanted to advocate for and support each other in building our own airplanes. And it very, very quickly uh, ballooned from that within the first couple of months into uh, an organization for anybody who flies or is around aviation just because they love it. Um, and that's, if I had to, to, to sum up the whole thing in sort of one sentence, we're a membership organization for people who just, who, uh, who love something about aviation, whether it's flying, building, restoring, uh, reading, going to air shows, uh, whatever it is. And uh, our under our umbrella is every kind of fun flying, from aerobatics and ultralights to uh, restoring uh, classic and antique airplanes to uh, to warbirds from, 
you know, little liaison airplanes up to big bombers, like our own B-17 that we have uh, that uh, we take on tours to teach people about it. And uh, as I mentioned on uh, Monday, you know, every summer, um, except 2020 again, every summer we hold the biggest aviation event of any kind in the world. And we'll get uh, somewhere around 600,000 people descend on Little Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And it's uh, it's one of the most fun uh, fun events you can imagine. And it's I love seeing first-timers. I love taking somebody on a tour. I love seeing it through new eyes because um, even somebody who might have only the slightest remote little passing interest in aviation will show up and after a week wandering around and getting immersed in it on this this giant, giant event, uh, they'll come away totally jazzed. And I see yeah, that it, uh, time and time again. It's and it's it's age it's age unrestricted. I mean, I've seen kids be interested in this. I've seen people that have had on the on the edge of you know they, they've watched it all their lives. But getting into it at any age is something that you can you can pick up right now. And, Absolutely. Uh, and it's eaa.org, right? Is where you can find out about this. Yes, it is. And if awesome. uh, if you you know if you like my peculiar brand of storytelling, uh, when you do join EA, you get uh, of course a subscription to Sport Aviation Magazine. Um, and so every month, uh, several features and columns and things about all aspects of aviation. And there's some technical and how-to stuff. And there's lots of empire- inspiring stories. There's always some good history. Uh, really, sort of the good uh, cross-section of, uh, you know, we call it sport aviation. But that really just translates to, you know, we we don't necessarily fly for a living. We don't always fly just to get someplace. We fly just because we love it. Uh, great words by you and really pretty pictures too that's a, the best way i can describe that magazine it's just every every month when it comes in my in my mailbox like look at that pit. the covers are always just amazing yeah, we so. take uh, we take great pride in uh in making the magazine look and feel uh just feel the best that uh, that we can do and it's a it's a hearty you know big thick magazine and and we try to cram it uh, cram it full of good content every month Wow, well, well worth your while. Uh, how let's we'll, we'll we'll get together again here and uh, and finish up the week and talk more about plane crashes and stuff <laughs> shortly. Uh, but in the meantime, while uh, people are waiting for Friday to roll around, if you do the three things that I always talk about way too much, but it's important during this plague time, uh, wash your hands. You know, you do it for at least twenty seconds. Uh, stay six feet apart and uh, wear a mask. Wear a mask. I I was I was at a store today and I saw somebody walk into into the store without a mask and I think at least three people told them you forgot your mask and they turned around and went, went back and got their mask out of their car. So uh, please do those three things so we can get away from this uh, plague as soon as we can. Anyway, we will return on Friday. Uh, so join us next time on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.